The Forum at 8 on SAFM. It's 10 minutes after 8. Thank you so much for staying with AM Live this morning and welcome to the Forum at 8. Now, this morning we look at the current electoral system in South Africa and we will in, uh, we will try to debate the merits and uh, the demerits thereof. Now, some commentators believe that the current system does not give full expression to the will of the people. But what does that mean exactly? The search for a perfect system has been long debated in South Africa and uh, Dr. Fansel Slabbert and he his electoral task team came up with a new electoral act for South Africa in 2003 and they presented a report to cabinet including a draft legislation recommending a closed list mixed members proportional electoral system. However, the team's recommendations were never implemented. So this morning we are asking, just two decades uh, into our democracy, does South Africa need electoral reform? And joining us for the conversation this morning, Ibrahim Fakir, who is the manager of governance institutions, processes at the Electoral Institute for Sustainability of the Democracy in Africa, ASA. Um, uh, good morning, Ibrahim. I'm not sure you're still with ASA at the moment. Uh, hi, Sakina. Well, I, I don't think it really matters, but yeah. Well, thank you so much for availing yourself to speak to us this morning. And we also have with us in studio Nompumelelo Runji, who is a researcher and public policy analyst. And she's also an opinions editor at Sowetan. Thanks for coming through. Thank you very much, Sakina, for having me. So, Ibrahim, one of the first questions that comes up is why we are even having this discussion. Is it peculiar to have discussions about electoral reform at any point? No, it isn't. Um, and in a democracy, no discussion about any issue uh, ought to be foreclosed. Of course, some people would think you're wasting time. But there comes moments in a society's history when these issues are, in fact, interrogated. And and you'll, there's, a, there's, a, there's a book which has been brought out by... Um, the former chairperson of the Electoral Commission of South Africa, Brigalia Baum, and Dr. Baum herself appears to suggest that we should be thinking about 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 reform in the system or thinking about what we would like in the electoral system. I mean, let me not say reform. She might think I'm putting words in her mouth. So, you know, I don't think it's a discussion which is foreclosed. It's something which will go on. Of course, we've had this discussion several times um, in the society, but that doesn't mean we should have it again. And there are good reasons why... I think uh, the system was retained uh, even after the Fanzel Slub report, but I do think uh, it's time to think about whether we introduce, even if it's small changes, as I argued in a piece um, late last year, that even if we introduce a small change, such as introducing a small threshold in the current pure proportional representation system. Now, very often, you know, when you listen to what people are saying uh, when one raises the issue of electoral reform, um, they would immediately start talking about uh, service delivery issues, instability and incompetent leaders. And somehow, when people talk generally about this particular matter, they seem to think that this will be the answer to all the current socio-political, socio-economic problems that we have. No. No system can be the panacea for the way in which the government actually operates. The electoral system is important for that uh, to the degree that you might believe that your elected representatives are closer to you, they might be more accountable, you can keep them more responsive, you can pressure them to a greater extent. But 
guess what? We have a pure mixed system at the local government level at present. Uh, remember, we elect 50% of our councillors off a PR list, the same way that we do for national and provincial MPs. And the other 50% of councillors are elected in a narrowly defined geographic ward in a constituency. So we know those people, right? We've elected an individual. And yet, the level of accountability, the level of responsiveness, and their operations in council operations, such as conducting oversight, has not necessarily significantly improved. And of course, many of the protests we see happening around the country are frequently targeted at local government operations. Sometimes, of course, they're misplaced because they're placing an onus of responsibility on a local government which is not in reality theirs. But we know that the real target is local government. So, so you know, we do have a mixed system at local government. The evidence is not quite clear that a, a, a constituency system or more constituency elements to the electoral system will necessarily improve. But I do think the point can be made that even, even if it bears the potential for greater responsiveness and accountability, it might be worth considering. Uh, of course, in doing so, I don't think we should lose sight of the fact that we must erode the key values of inclusivity, diversity, representativity, and quite importantly, simplicity. Because uh, often people would want to go for these incredibly complicated systems which tries to maximize all the benefits and minimizes all the harms that come in the electoral system. And as you said in the introduction, there's no perfect system. Think about the DRC, where they try to adopt an electoral system which tries to maximize all these benefits of inclusivity, representativity, diversity, accountability, responsiveness, and they ended up with a mixed-member system with open lists, with the ranking uh, of how you would choose candidates in a mixed-member constituency, and it is impossible not just to administer but also to, to simply to understand. But are there aspects of our democracy that can be improved through electoral reform, Nomfumelem? Well, I'd like to agree with a lot of what um, Ibrahim was saying. You see, the electoral system is only one aspect of a democratic uh, political system that we have. Um, There are many other things that make up this framework. Um, We've got other provisions in the Constitution that provide for questions of oversight and accountability and transparency, for instance. And that's why, for instance, we have like a separation of powers between the legislature, the judiciary, the executive, and each is supposed to be a check and a balance on the other. And, you know, Parliament is to uh, exercise oversight over the executive, etc. The judiciary is to hold the two arms of the other two arms of government to account. So we do have other other um, provisions in the Constitution that try to provide for these other things that we may think are lacking in a a proportional, simple proportional or pure proportional presentation system that we have. And so um, there are other ways that... um, we, our constitutional architects have tried to strengthen the link between um, the representatives and public officials as well as the public. Uh, we've also got the Chapter 9 institutions, for instance, where uh, the public can go and, and, and make complaints or make, uh, you know, uh, representations uh, against the state, for instance, or against state uh, actions, and they find recourse uh, for, for issues that they have. We've got... Um, 
provision for consultations at local government le- uh, level, at provincial level and nas- national level. Are those things working as uh, optimally as they should? No, they're not. And there is room for improvement in those other aspects of mm-hmm. our, of our uh, so democratic framework. Answer? So the answer is that um, we could perhaps have some benefits from uh, tweaking a little bit of the uh, electoral system, perhaps to strengthen the aspects uh, that would uh you know, sort of strengthen the link between voters and uh, those who represent them. Uh, if we want to add uh, constituency elements, we could consider that. But we can't uh, think that will be the silver bullet. We have to also work on these other elements that aren't working. For instance, if you look at the Etoll saga in Gauteng, one of the biggest uh, complaints that the people of Gauteng have is that we were not consulted. And you hear this a lot when it comes to policy decisions and policy issues. So we could, we could really, government could really work harder on the communication systems that they use uh, to, to reach out to communities and tell them about the programs and, and, and the policies that they're trying to put in place and get and, and one of the things that we are finding is becoming more of a problem. And when you look at these service delivery protests, it's really about public voice. You know, it's really about people saying we want our voices to be heard. We want our demands to, to be understood and also respected. Um, and so if, if, if we can't get any joy by speaking to our ward councillor or going to the municipality, then we'll protest. If, if the government doesn't want to hear us a different way. We find other ways for the government to hear us. So there are definitely uh, areas that we can con- work on without necessarily uh, having an overhaul of the, of the electoral system mm-hmm. that could still help us achieve the same uh, a, a goal. Ibrahim Fakir, as things stand right now in um, South Africa, is electoral reform possible in the foreseeable future in South Africa? And if so, what would be the drivers thereof? <laughs> Well, that ultimately depends on the incentives that political parties see in electoral reform, right? Let's be let's be frank. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not we're not at a point in our history where the political parties are driven by purely public interest principles, um, and they would think that any degree of reform, whether it's in the electoral system, whether it's about private funding, uh, regulating private funding of political parties, the only time they'll do so is if they see that they can either maintain uh, or expand their power base. Now, you know, if you, if you took this society 15 years ago and you had a pure first-past-the-post constituency-driven system nationally, in all likelihood, the way in which the constituencies are drawn and given the demographics of our country, and if it's true that elections are largely racial census, you would have found that the ANC probably would have won about 80 or 90% of the constituencies, which means, which means they would be sitting with about 350 to 400 to close to 380 members of parliament if, if, if we were driven solely by that system. The advantage of them back then is that they were able to maintain the majority that they did, but built in legitimacy into the system by having sufficient uh, opposition parties. Now, it's true that our current system has so much diversity, so much representativity, so much proliferation of opposition parties. The question to ask is, what impact do many of the smaller opposition parties have in the way in which there is operational oversight, the way in which they can demand a level of accountability, and the way in which they can actually foster debate in Parliament, not just in the plenary, but also in committee, given 
that you've got close to about 50 or so portfolio committees. Now, if you're a small party, it's almost impossible to spread yourself thin. On the other hand, <clears throat> smaller parties, sometimes even individual MPs, have had quite a marked impact when they stand firm on particular issues. So it does have significant advantages, but I do think that, that, that actually, if you want to improve oversight, I think we should introduce a minimum threshold. Now, if parties are going to want to go for this, they will need to see something useful in it for them. And I think we're going to need a moment again where parties are going to have to sacrifice what they think is in their own personal interest as a party and what's going to serve us as a society better. And even though I'm not a fan of thinking purely that electoral reform is going to work, I think that there is some space to suggest that a mixed system may have better advantages because not only will it change the system at the moment, it will also start to change that soft aspect of the political culture, the way in which we interact with our, with our MPs, the kind of issues we bring up with them, the kind of demands we make on them, and the degree of responsiveness that we, that we, that we, that we would expect from them. The, the one incentive and driver that you suggest uh, or that you're asking about is, is there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a debate raging now about whether we should have a directly elected president. Mm -hmm. And what people miss about a directly elected president is that in almost every place in which there is a directly elected president, the amount of power which is concentrated in executive office is so inordinately high that actually it starts to create presidential monarchs. Think about Zimbabwe. Think about the United States. And compare and contrast that to what happened in South Africa. When Thabo Mbeki had to be removed... <clears throat> Of course, there were two bites at the potential cherry at the time because we had an indirectly elected president. If he had chosen not to go, the party could have <coughs> mustered a majority in parliament and passed a motion of no, of, of no confidence um, in him and would have got rid of him. Or there was a second bite at the cherry, which is the option they chose, which he was persuaded by his party that, that, that he should leave. Now, if you had a directly elected president as you had in Malawi, the person at that time left the party on, which, on whose back he was elected into presidential office. He left that party and started another party. When people turned around and said, but you need to go, he said, sorry, I was directly elected, which technically and legally was true. But the reality of the matter is that it introduced uh, you know, fairly unethical um, operation of, of, of a sitting head of state at the time. So, you know, the idea of, of, of directly elected presidents, of course the incentive there for big, strong man politics, people who think they're always going to have a popular candidate, um, for them the incentive is, is very high to have a directly elected president, but the downside of having directly elected presidents is in fact quite high. Nompumelan? Well, um, when we look at the question of electoral reform, we also have to f locate it. You know, um, I remember uh, just before the elections last year, the DA had it in its manifesto, this question of electoral reform. Um, Ahang, uh, former leader of the Ahang, uh, used to talk a lot about electoral reform. 
One of the misconceptions that some opposition parties have is that if we have a, a, a mixed system or constituency-based system, they are more likely to increase their vote margins. And I'd like to just agree with Ibrahim, that's not necessarily the case. That is because um, we've had a lot of people problematize the dominance of the ANC in our, in our politics in the last um, 21 years. The fact that the ANC consistently has large majorities in um, parliament, for instance, and they think that is a problem and it's, it weakens democracy, etc. But I want to also say that one of the things that we hardly focus on uh, is, is the, the strength of our opposition parties as well, their ability to actually keep the ANC on its toes. The strength of uh, opposition parties is not necessarily only measured in, in, in their ability um, to take over power in the next couple of years, for instance, but their ability to actually force accountable behavior from the governing party, their ability to force uh, or to challenge the ANC to look within itself uh, and, and, and its own internal democratic practices and you know, root out the rot within itself. And that would be to the benefit of uh, uh, the society in, in, because uh, whether we like it or not, the ANC it has been in power and is going to continue being in power. So we would benefit from opposition parties that are institutionalized enough that they gain the trust of the public. What we've had in the last 21 years is parties, small parties that appear and disappear, small parties that would come on, you know, on, on, on the block like, the, like Cope, for instance, which, with large fanfare and get a huge amount of votes, and then in the next election diminish. Now, what that does is, 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 is it breeds a level of mistrust in, in the electorate such that they can't see an alternative. They can't put confidence in any other, uh, you know, policy alternative outside of the ANC. And then that also foments the frustration that we see in terms of responsiveness, the lack of responsiveness in government. So where else do they turn when government is unresponsive? So we need to actually start um, having a debate about the adequacy of, of, of our opposition in, in, in South Africa. How institutionalized are they? Um, we need to start questioning their internal democracy as much as we question the ANC's internal democracy. We need to question the way that um, their leadership structures are, are formulated. We, we need to question the way that they are building links within communities with themselves and how it is that they take the, the, the interests of, of those constituencies and those communities into the realms of, of a parliament and the various legislatures, for instance. And it's only when that begins to happen that we, we will see a, a further strengthening of our democratic uh, system. Um, it, it can't just be that we, we, we just tweak the electoral system and still leave the public without an alternative to, to, to the governing party. And we also can't um, necessarily uh, you know, blame the ANC for its complacency, so to speak. There's a ten, if you look in uh, you know, political science theory, uh, if, a, if a party has dominance for a number of years and is almost guaranteed every single time of winning an election, there is a tendency to become arrogant and complacent. But it's only when you've got that competition that keeps the, you know, the governing party on its toes that we are guaranteed of a, a high quality of democracy. And, and I think that's one element that we, we need to start focusing on as a country. Well, and will that guarantee, uh, you know, a different outcome for the electorate? And the question we are asking this morning, two, dec- uh, two decades into our democracy, does South Africa need electoral reform?
The Forum at 8 on SAFM. On the forum at eight this morning, we are asking, does South Africa need electoral reform just two decades into our democracy? What are your views on this? 0891104208 is the call-in number. SMS us on 34701. Tweet or Facebook AM Live on SAFM. And, whoa, there are many, many messages coming through. Let's try and breeze through them. Um, Nompumelelo Runji and uh, Ibrahim Fakir, our analysts uh, this morning. So uh, we're going to listen to your calls and then we'll get them to respond. Mike in Sedgefield, thanks for holding. Um, Fakina, I think there's one fundamental problem with the uh, proportional system we have, and it is that the politicians see themselves as accountable to the party and not to the electors. It is very, very difficult indeed to find out who represents you. Um, I live in the constituency of Neisner. Do I approach the ANC? Do I approach the DA? Do I approach the EFF? Who is my MP? I happen to know who the ANC have nominated as my MP. He lives in Gauteng and works in Cape Town and, and is very rarely available in Neisner. I think we need to find some way of making the politicians from the president on downwards accountable to the, the electors. Thank you, Mike. Uh, let's go to Port Elizabeth. Gift, good morning. Morning, Sakina, and morning to your guest. Look, I, I think let's start this debate by by saying this, Sakina. I think the African National Congress adopted the current PR system after 1994 because we wanted an inclusive system that is representative of minority views and in the interest of an inclusive transition. Secondly, Sakina, this PR system has facilitated a special focus on women, on rural communities and other targeted groups such as youth. Thirdly, Sakina, the PR system is accommodative of even smaller parties, thereby ensuring that there's participated democracy in this country. And I want to disagree with your guest uh, with the notion that the electoral reforms will improve accountability. And I think it's, it's misleading because, to me, Sakina, improve accountability, which is critical to, which is critical and is, and is a critical feature of our democracy, is not only dependent solely on electoral reforms. For an example, Sakina, this system in which <laughs> most political parties and, and independent uh, nominate candidates for, for each 400 constituencies Remember that we've got 400 members of parliament and the candidate who gets the most votes win the seat will result in replacement of the current multi-party system, which to me is a two-party system. Lastly, Sakina, if one was to remove the, the propaganda lies and dishonesty from the debate on electoral reforms, the naked reality remains that a different electoral system is no panacea. For an example, and I want to raise this point critically, in the Nelson Mandela Bay municipality in 2011 local government election, you've got a minority party called UDM, which received plus minus 2,000 votes out of uh, 1.2 registered voters. And that political party received one seat, and you, you can imagine a party getting only 2,000 votes, getting a seat in the local government. If we had that, if we didn't have that PR system, that part was not going to get that seat. And I just mm-hmm. want to, 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 to raise that issue critical so that Fakir can respond on this issue because PR system helps these smaller parties. If we didn't have that PR system, all these smaller parties should have not having, having mm-hmm. a representation in parliament or in most of the municipalities. But how does that help our democracy? You know, um, as you say, people, um, parties who cannot even garner a sizable uh, size of the electorate actually getting representation. 
you know, at various level of, uh, levels of government. How does that help our democracy? No, Sakina, I want, to, I want to put this point again. If we didn't have this peer system, these smaller parties, whom to me don't enjoy electoral support from constituencies, should not have had a representation in mm. all these levers of power. But because of we have this PR system, we have accommodated them because they're not enjoying support. Yeah, so, so, so how does that help us as South Africa? Because, you know, what value does that add to our democracy? Sakina, I mean, Sakina, I want to raise this point again clearly. Majority of South Africans overwhelmingly have been voting the African National Congress in droves and in millions. And because of we want to have this multi-party system, we have put the system of PR because we wanted to help these smaller parties who don't enjoy support. And I think there's an element of some analysts in this country and some political parties of undermining, uh, I mean, the people who have been voting the ANC overwhelmingly as if they are mad. Because if you listen, to people who, who, who criticize people who vote for ANC, they even question their intellect. They even question how do they vote party that they, they claim that it's not dealing with their issues. Oh, but, I mean, honestly. Okay. Let's get Ibrahim Fakir to respond. Thanks, Gift, uh, because you posed that question directly to him. I think Gift's listening to a different radio station, um, actually. There's nothing different in what we're saying. Um, of course, I think both myself and the guest in your studio are saying that electoral reform is not itself going to change the way in which our political culture, um, the level of unaccountability uh, and other ills in the political system are going to be solved. Obviously, I think we know that. That's, that's, that much is quite clear. No one's also arguing that elements of the PR system must disappear altogether. Uh, that's not the argument at all. Uh, in fact, I think we were quite emphatic in saying that the current, ish, the current sort of strength of the system is its inclusivity, its representativity, its diversity, its ability to accommodate small parties. The, the question to ask here is to what degree do you want to accommodate small parties? You know, if you have no threshold whatsoever, depending on your level of voter turnout, for a national election, all you would need is close to about between 40,000 and perhaps 45,000 votes to have one seat in Parliament. If I were unemployed, uh, it would be a lovely idea for me to set up myself as a one-person political party, get the government grant that comes because of the public funding formula that we have for political parties, the parliamentary grant, the constituency grant, uh, and every other thing. And basically, I'm set for five years. So do you see the point I'm, I'm driving to, that I think that though small parties' inclusivity are important values in a democracy, they're vital, the degree is you can't sacrifice too much of that one value at the expense of other values. Now, if I were that lone MP, depending on the issues I would bring up, depending on my commitment to a set of, of, of issues and my ability to actually spread myself thin across parliamentary committees where fundamental deliberations take place, what real impact can I, in fact, have in terms of oversight? So, you know, it's the, one shouldn't crudify the debate. No one is saying that the small parties must be cut out completely. 
No one is saying that there must be no element of PR and inclusivity. No one is suggesting that there must be a complete wholesale overhaul of the system into a pure proportional representation system. One is saying, however, that one has to be discreet about the degree to which you make trade-offs on certain principles to strengthen other principles. So mm -hmm. we might have to sacrifice a little bit of inclusivity for greater effectiveness in oversight. But, but until when? And, and, and one could understand, you know, when we had this transition to democracy, that you wanted to be as inclusive as possible. But until when are we going to persist with that? When do we start to raise the threshold? No, I think the inclusivity is a value which is enduring. I don't think it's time-bound. Same is true for representativity. I think you want to balance all of these considerations. So I don't think that there's a time-specific uh, limit uh, at which we should say, well, we've had enough inclusivity. I mean, clearly, if you look at the level of polarization in our society, it's still, it's still pretty deep. It's still pretty fundamental. There's still lots of work to be done for integration, uh, for equality, for, for maximum liberty. So I don't think that these values um, have, a, have, a, have a limit. I think the real question for us is how do we balance the different considerations, the strengths we have in the current system with, with its weaknesses, and how do we, how, what do we do in order to address some of the weaknesses that we might have? Of course, if there's a consensus that we retain this current system, you know, I don't think that will be the end. Uh, that's the end of the society as we know it. Clearly, it won't be. Mm. Uh, but we can strengthen it. That's the argument one is making, that, that it can be strengthened. Um, I, I also, you know, there's this idea that, that was put out that perhaps if we have uh, better institutionalized opposition parties, uh, perhaps a, a risk of, of, of leadership alternation uh, in government, of course, those are nice things. But that's up to parties themselves. Of course, the electoral system helps parties to institutionalize or otherwise. But a lot of parties' institutionalization is dependent on what they do in their parties, firstly. And secondly, it's fundamentally dependent on the level of connection that they enjoy with society. And it is on that second score that many opposition parties uh, appear to have to have deep problems. I mean, we have much less organizational issues uh, uh, within parties about structure, about process, about decision-making, uh, about about running an office, all of those issues. Those are big issues for our parties. I think our big our parties' major issues are about deep and, 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 and persistent levels of connection in society. Mm. And, and, and why then do you uh, think, Nompumelelo, so many of our listeners just looking at the messages coming through, um, still agree uh, with Mike, who called in earlier, about uh, the accountability issue. Why do you think people think that um, accountability, that particular problem, can be solved through electoral reform? Because, um, Sakina, when you look at a constituency-based system, for instance, um, like, what we, like the mixed system that we have at the local government election, uh, level, um, you would elect... Uh, some representatives according to uh, proportional representation and then 50% directly. Now, the ones that you elect directly, you know who they are. You would have uh, selected them off a ballot box so you can hold them directly to account. If something goes wrong that they were responsible for, you've got a go-to person. You go to that person and you complain to that person. And, and that strengthens, you know, the, the link and the confidence between uh, the voters and that 
you know, ward councillor, for instance, just the ability to have someone to hold personally to account when something goes wrong or someone to congratulate when something goes right. Now, at this present moment, there's a feeling of disconnect between elected representatives that sit in Cape Town and hold parliamentary debates, sometimes that people feel um, they're not actually discussing the issues that are really of concern to them. We've seen all the debates about Nkandla and the chaos in in Parliament, for instance. So people are looking for a go-to person, someone they can pick up the phone and call and say, uh, this was what was expected in in this constituency. I think Mike said he's from Naisna, Mm -hmm. and this is not happening. Can you please uh, speak to the relevant person on our behalf and ensure that that which we are wanting or demanding is actually taken seriously. But at at this point in time, it's difficult because there is no direct link of a representative to a specific constituency. Mm. Now, um, the ANC in in Parliament has tried to do that, and I think most MPs in Parliament would have a constituency base. But the, the fact of the matter is that the communication of that is not quite there. So people don't actually know who their MP is, for instance, in a specific area, if they should have a problem and they would like someone to, to, to be held account or oversight to be exercised, they don't know who to call directly. Um, and so you'd find that that either, and especially those who are not affiliated to a, a particular political party, because if I'm an ANC member, I look for my ANC office or ANC branch in my area and go and raise my issue. But if I'm not who do I go to, for instance? Uh, and at the local level, um, if, if my counsellor is not performing or is not available, who do I go to, for instance? And I think that's why people are raising this question of accountability. It's that ability to, to have answers when they need answers. And then on the, on the other thing, the value of uh, the PR system that we have is that if you look at our parliament over the last 21 years, it's almost a microcosm of our society. People can actually see themselves in parliament uh, you, because you, you have a representative perhaps who comes from your background, who comes from your race, who comes from your culture. So there's a, the representation element is very strong in our parliament and there's nothing wrong with that. That's actually a positive thing. And if you look at countries for instance, like Kenya, that reviewed its constitution in 2010. Those are some of the elements that they are they they've included in 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 their constitutional framework to to try and uh, strengthen uh, that which was weakened by a constituency system, for instance. And I want to agree with Gift, and we're not we're not speaking past each other. Gift, and uh, uh, we are actually agreeing to a certain extent. The electoral system is only one part of this large system, large democratic system. There's our political culture. There's the party system. There's the constitutional arrangements that we have. And all those need to work together to try and achieve those values which we think are important. Inclusivity, fairness, uh, um, and accountability as well. And then uh, lastly... Um, the other uh, important factor about this PR system is there's, there's, there's a sense that one's vote is not wasted. You know what I mean? If, even if I vote for a small party, uh, my vote has not been thrown away because that party still has a, a chance of getting into, into parliament. What you have with a pure constituency-based system is that you get this uh, large amount of so-called wasted votes 
Whereas if you vote for a smaller party or one that is not necessarily uh, uh, certain of getting into uh, uh, parliament, for instance, with a large majority, then you've wasted your vote. And that's one of the things that was, was being avoided uh, when this uh, uh, system was, was, was adopted in the first place. And also then um, raises the question of what happens at local government level where people do have the opportunity to elect uh, representatives directly. And yet we still see a lot of, um, you know, displeasure being um, displayed daily through service delivery protests. So what does that mean? But let me read through some of the messages. Uh, Priscilla says, Sakina, the electoral system must be reformed. IEC is no longer to be trusted. ANC wants to make sure that they rule till kingdom come. This one says, the time now has arrived for South African public to directly elect their representatives so that they can be accountable to the public and not to political parties. Um, This one, yes, South Africa needs electoral reform big time. Public representatives must be elected directly by the voters and be accountable. And that word comes up time and time again. Um, Another one, SK, the electoral system must change. 2010 parties, um, uh, 210 parties, it's a no-no. We should have only four parties. The investments in the IEC is so, so high. Um, Tsepo says, your guest from Sowetan is sensationalist, um, not providing uh, cogent arguments, and she supports these violent protests, it would seem. Um, Anthony says, Hitler came to power as a populist leader through proportional representation. And then uh, Monde Banetti in Breitbach says, um, the time has arrived for the South African public to directly elect their representatives so that they can be accountable to the public and not to political parties. Uh, Dean Limpopo says, uh, no, we have, um, we need, what we need is not reform, but electoral education. Aisha says, please explain why was Thabo Mbeki removed and why did he go without resistance? What makes a person of his qualifications incompetent? Please enlighten me. And then a few others. Um, this one here from Sig in Randberg says, we have insufficient clever voters to defend democracy against unelected ANC stooges who uphold ANC corruption in parliament. Mageba in Pretoria says, those seeking electoral reforms hope and pray that the reforms will help them to dislodge the ANC and derail our liberation. The priority of the ANC is to continue to deliver our people from white oppression. Land expropriation bill and many more uh, redress reforms are the priority of the dynamic ANC. And um, so it goes. Many others also coming through. But uh, yeah, just a quick response, Nampumelelo, to those issues. Well, I just wanted to respond to what you were saying earlier about, um, you know, the fact that you know people, ward councillors are elected directly at the local government level. We need to remember that the local government does not operate in a vacuum. It operates within a, a broader system of governance, and it's called cooperative governance with, with, with provincial and national government, even with the party structures. Although there are party structures at the local level, they report to provincial structures who report to national structures. So you've got to understand that there are also uh, nuances and dynamics there as well. Even though I have a councillor that I may have elected, that council may most of the time also be connected to a political party and would have to report to uh, a specific branch or report 
report to a specific province, for instance. So we, we also need to broaden that debate about the, the, the effectiveness of our mixed system at the local level uh, that does not correspond to the electoral system at the provincial and national level. That also creates some level of disjuncture when it comes to accountability because there's this notion, and there's this notion that was raised by Mike as well earlier, to say that um, in, in, in a constituency-based system, the representative would not be accountable to their party but would be accountable to their constituency. It does not always follow because um, the, the, the constituency representative may also be attached to a specific political party and may come with those manifest with the same uh, program of action, etc., that may come from a political party. And you, find, you see that across uh, the African continent where the constituency-based system is used. So the, the, the notion that political parties have less power in a constituency-based system is not, does not necessarily follow. So those are some of the other debates that we need to, to, to have and some of the things that we need to start looking at. Mm. Um, uh, then, Ibrahim Fakir, as you respond to some of those, you know, also uh, just a question as to, you know, when people have heard, they've read up, they've been educated on the merits and demerits of the various uh, systems that could be adopted, who actually then gets to decide whether electoral reform takes place or not? Well, people can pressure it best, but, you know, Parliament uh, as a collective will decide because it will require a constitutional and a legal amendment. In our case, a constitutional amendment to a degree because we've legislated the system through that through that process. So, you know, obviously it will have to go through Parliament. But but finally, I'm going to leave you with three thoughts. One is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised the level of deep suspicion, well, I'm not surprised actually at the level of deep suspicion that people have of political parties. Well, the simple reality is that they must then go and fix their political parties. You can't miraculously expect that the political parties will suddenly fix themselves without your participation. Second, Frankly, I find it bizarre that people think that, you know, if you suddenly change the electoral system to a pure first-past-the-post system, you're going to have suddenly more accountable uh, MPs. I mean, just our local government system defies that logic. But but more importantly, in Zimbabwe, they have pure elect ward constituency elected representatives doesn't appear to be solving many of their public policy problems in the UK. They run exactly the same pure first past the post system. Repeatedly, Labour MPs and backbenchers didn't in fact want to go to war uh, in Iraq, even when they had a majority, but their party bosses turned against them. Same with same is true with with restructuring the national health service. So there's many examples in which in which this idea that pure first past the post elected representatives are suddenly more accountable is not true. That it has greater potential, yes, that much is true. Third, the idea that you had leadership alternation at the top. Zambia has had changes in its in its governing party. Doesn't appear to have solved many of its public policy, economic, and employment problems. So, you know, these ideas that you will trot out, um, we can we can we we can change the system, and suddenly, you know, we'll have more accountability, and 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 many of our social intractable social problems will disappear. Is simply not true. Finally, the idea that you will constitutionally engineer systems which either force coalitions force people to work together, uh, will suddenly be more inclusive, will force accountability, is also not true. Look at Lesotho and look at Kenya. The idea of having multiple representation from different parts of the country is a good constitutional engineering mechanism, but it's fundamentally illiberal.
Well, that's all we have time for this morning. You've heard it. And, um, well, as, as, as our guests have explained, you will have to decide how exactly uh, to engineer the accountability that you so sorely seek from your leaders. With that, uh, thanks to our guests this morning and thanks to you for listening and participating. And we're back again tomorrow between uh, 6 and 9. Right now, it's 9 a.m. and time for news with Kirat Lala.